You should see me. I'm like hunched over my desk right now. I look like Quasimodo trying to figure out how to use a microphone. <laughs> Seriously, why don't you get something to prop it up? I'm, 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 I am unprepared for this today. <laughs> I'm running on no sleep too, which isn't helpful. Um, all right. I have a box now. Oh yeah. You sound good. All right. I'm trying. Now I'm using these. Uh, so my usual headphones that I use uh, are somehow not with me. It's one of the problems when you've got like 47 people in your family is the likelihood that, that all peripherals to, you know, eye gadgets yes. <laughs> leaving just goes up dramatically. They all flow downhill. I've learned. I, I know. And I'm like, I am downhill on some number of fronts, but not this one. All right. You know, like my, my headphones and my chargers are not flowing to me. <laughs> I don't know where they are, but with me, it's not the answer. I'm pretty sure that I'm like one step away from being a janitor and like carrying that retractable key ring, but on the end is just the chargers that I need to use every day. <laughs> I don't think that's a good look, though. It's an effective look. <laughs> I think that's why they use them. <laughs> okay. I say we start the show. All right. All right, this is uh, episode number 194, season two, episode three of the Ruby on Rails podcast, and I am so excited. This is the episode where you find out the protagonists have a dirty secret. (laughs) The one dirty secret. Yeah, I mean, I've seen a lot of dramas, and I know that episode three is the one that you need to watch out for. What kind of shoddy protagonist has one dirty secret, by the way? (laughs) It's a Pandora's box secret, you know? (laughs) That's how they go. Okay, uh, I'm going to lob, uh, well, first, a, a tiny bit of follow-up. Uh, we had good, I'd say better than good feedback, great feedback about the last episode, and really some some from the previous one, too, except for your audio, which oh, is geez. a very popular complaint to make. And I kind of knew that, I, I knew that the show was, was uh, hitting the right chord when people start complaining about the audio, because... <laughs> They right? run out of things to complain about. Well, just because they care at all, you know, because yeah. otherwise you're like, oh, I can't hear the audio, which is just as well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I think that, I think that it's better. So, uh, I do not believe we aspire to, uh, to have the best produced podcast on the planet, but you know, let's just, let's quell the, quell the complaints. I'm sure we'll hear. <laughs> right. I'm Bri- trying over here. Okay, so I'm going to lob out the first topic. So we we left off last week with you about to board a very circuitous flight from Connecticut to California to go to the uh, GitHub Summit. Yep. And now you're back, uh, at least in body. Hopefully your mind is back from all the red-eyeing and, and ferberizing and whatever sleep deprivation tricks you've played on yourself. Yep. Uh, how was it? Uh, it was great. Um yeah, so uh, everyone, uh, or uh, almost everyone from GitHub is there, and so that's I think like around like a little over three hundred people now. Um, it was in sunny San Diego, which I haven't uh, thoroughly enjoyed in quite some time, and so I'm very tan, which is sort of odd for a nerdy person who sits at a computer all day. You really, you are very tan. I am extremely tan. I wish you could see this. I am, <laughs> I am very tan. <laughs> And as as a good nerd, I wore my Apple Watch the whole time, and so if you'd like, you can see the before and after of, <laughs> of the color I was before I went to San Diego, and then the color I am now. 
Do you have any obligatory, like, nerdy burns? Like, oh, that one stretch I forgot to get in the back of my left arm, that kind of thing? You know what? I survived rather well. <laughs> wow. Without, yeah. ja- without Jamie there, even. I know, I know. And I actually didn't even, like, suntan lotion myself that that much, you know, just a couple of times. But um, I know, like, you know, uh, Steve Smith, who works at GitHub, has a very awesome uh, handkerchief-shaped, uh, you know, non-burn, I guess. Uh, from doing some outdoor activities on one of the days where, you know, I feel like a lot of people did not anticipate what covering up a, a portion of your body would accomplish, <laughs> except make for some pretty hilarious uh, non-burns. Right. So when you were in um, high school or junior high, whenever this sort of thing gets popular, was it a thing for people to write their like love interests name on their body and sunscreen so that for the whole summer they would have like a <laughs> non burn of it. That seems like such a mistake. <laughs> oh, I don't know that I've ever heard of that to be honest. <laughs> so that was totally a thing. And I, I always really? thought, yeah, I always thought that it was a thing everywhere until I've told the story a couple times, like in the last 10 years and people are like, no, that's not, that's not no. a thing. Someone played a really cruel joke on you. I think, well, I didn't do it, but I, I remember uh, this girl, uh, Erica Jackstat, that, like I could remember like two handfuls of names from that time of my life at this point. But I think one of the reasons I remember her is, is she did this and, um, you know what happens next, right? Well, like, of course the next day, her and Mike Bedell, longtime friend, he grew up next to me next day. He's out the door. <laughs> and, uh, I never knew the answer to the question. How long does a name written like reverse written in sunscreen last until <laughs> that summer, which is, I think it was my eighth grade summer. But the answer is like a year. That's amazing. I know. Wow. And it was in like the, you can imagine the writing. So she, she wrote it herself, but somehow managed to write. It was right on like the mil- middle of her stomach. And she wrote it in like bubble, bubble letters with a, <laughs> with a heart as the eye for Mike. Oh, so good. Right. Oh man. I got a tattoo once of a J on my back, which is the first initial of my wife's name. And uh, I got a lot of flack for that. Uh, apparently, that's bad juju as well. Oh, I don't. I don't buy it. I th- I think it's good. I didn't. I have, I have backup plans. I mean, it could be like a fish hook. I thought, I, you, meant, I thought you meant like Jill, which I was going to say. Don't don't say that. <laughs> no, it could be a fish hook. It could be. Uh, I don't know the beginning of a zero. Jessica. Do some binary. Yeah. There's backup plans, but I don't know. Sons. I don't know. I don't know. Nobody even did that. I guess that's like a thing now for the hipsters, the like sunscreen designs, you know, like mm. bad, bad, bad life choices there too. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I tattooed my wedding ring on my hand, mm. but see, that just sounds like good idea. <laughs> just no matter what happens, no matter what happens, you like, I don't even wear a wedding ring anymore. Cause I, I just, I'm not responsible enough to have one on my finger. And so I have my wedding ring. I didn't lose it, but I just kind of have it upstairs in the bedroom and so like i've i've considered tattooing primarily just because it's something i don't need to worry about every day (laughs) yeah Uh, i'm you know however many years in and it's a good choice i think yeah i mean you know whatever the you know things happen in life but i mean i don't know it's there you go you have a you know wedding ring i'm just gonna tattoo as many things on me that shouldn't change like my address 
<laughs> my cell phone number. Right. I, uh, well, I gave Teresa a 40th birthday gift, which was, uh, that she could tattoo anything she wanted anywhere on me, which she has yet to redeem. Although the chatter on it has increased in the last week. So I think she's getting yeah, closer. See, if I were you, I, I know you told me about this and I like this idea. I would have, I would have probably, uh, set an, not an expiration date, but a, a due date. Cause <laughs> right. the problem is, is the longer it goes, the more people are going to get involved. <laughs> I know it's true. And she's, she's not really prone to come up with something crazy, but other people are. See, <laughs> yeah. All right, so so back to the GitHub Summit. So, yeah, so the Summit was great. Um, a lot of just sort of uh, team time, uh, talking with the platform team, a lot of sort of uh, directional stuff, just w- where where we want to go, what we want to do this year. Um, and then, honestly, it's, it is a lot of just sort of hanging out with both people you work with and people you don't. I mean, I think GitHub's hired something like 75 people, maybe 100 people in the last year. So there's a lot of people that I've never met in person. So I mean, a lot of the time of that is dedicated to serendipitous interaction, just seeing people you haven't met before, chatting with them, throwing ideas off each other, and, you know, kind of seeing, uh, you know, seeing what can come. And so um, it was three days of, uh, of planning, chatting, eating, a lot of food at these things. Yeah. But it was good. Drinking usually. You didn't mention it, but that's usually There are there are beverages. Yeah. Um some you know, it's uh not as big of a thing as it uh was once was, I would say, but it's uh it's definitely there. Um three days is hard because you know, one day one day is obviously easy. You could you could do whatever you wanted to and you'd be fine. Two days I feel like you can like gut through if you had you know, partied the first night, three days though. Ooh, you got it. You got to pace yourself. Yeah. But that's very true. They used to be like four days long. Oh my God. God. And and yeah. And I think to be honest though, I mean, while we have a large range of, um, ages and like, um, I'm not sure the word for this. Like I want to say lifestyles, like parents, no parent, you know, no kids, lots of kids married, not married, whatever. Um, but I do think that uh, on the whole, I mean, GitHub is like, I think like what, like seven or eight years old now, maybe. Mm-hmm. And so like it, on the whole, right, the the ages have obviously only been growing, you know, as, as time has gone on. And so I feel like this summit was a relatively mature, calm, like we have three days, let's, this is a marathon, not a sprint summit. <laughs> um, and I've only been to two others and I can assure you the first one was not that way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Hey, you learn how to pace yourself. It sort yeah. of reminds me of a, a funny story from two weeks ago. So I was in Boston and, uh, I was seeing a friend and he used, well, that's not the reason I was there, but while I was there, I decided to see this friend named Watt. And I used to work with this guy and have been friends ever since. So probably about, Mm, 14 years or something. So quite a while. Anyways, when I first met him, um, you know, we were in our mid twenties, early to mid twenties. And, uh, we went to a couple of conferences together and to your point, I mean, it was absolutely unchained. I mean, he is a fun guy in the first place. And then you get like the time of life. Plus the guy had uh, one kid at the time, but you know, so I wasn't getting out as much and, and, you know, probably could be, uh, forced into instigating him to cause trouble if asked. So, uh, anyway, so I, I, I have all these great stories about going to conferences with him and how it really was a remarkably crazy time. 
Um, well, anyways, so I was talking to Teresa and saying, well, I'm going to see Watt while I'm out there. And she, she, you know, she gives the obligatory, well, you know, don't, don't do anything crazy. Well, I'm pretty tame, but he's not, or he wasn't. And, uh, uh, so I said, no, 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 come on. It's like 14 years later. He's, you know, in his late thirties. It's, it's, uh, he's past that. Turns out, (laughs) turns out he has not lost a beat. And it made me think that it has much more to do with sort of life circumstances. Like, do you have kids or not? than it does your age because at late thirties, he can still go like it was 23 and me, I'm, you know, I don't know, probably 10 years ago or so I slowed down. There we go. All right. So I've got a few questions about the summit. Okay. Uh, let's talk about your strategy. And I think everyone, this is one of those topics that people don't talk about out loud that I think is interesting, which is, mm-hmm. so if you've got a, like once a year, once every three months or whatever, uh, meeting where you're going to see lots of people, some who, you know, some that, you know, some that you don't know, some that are peers, some that work for you, some that you work for, etc. How formal are you in your prep for like what you want to get done? I'm going to use the word politically and I'm not going to load the word. Like, I don't mean negatively politically. I mean like politically as in influencing people and getting what you want out of relationships. Sure. How formal are you in your prep? Um, I mean, formal makes it sound like I'm like uh, on the West wing and I have like a briefing book or something that I'm bringing along with me or something. But I, I mean, personally for summits, the big thing is just, what do I want to accomplish in the next year? And sometimes I go in not knowing at all. Sometimes I go in having a, a glimmer of an idea that I kind of want to um, mature while we're there. And sometimes I go in, you know, like uh, full tilt. I know exactly what I want to do. And I think that the longer I've been at GitHub, there's been a lot less full tilt. I know exactly what I want to do and more of the glimmer stage, you know? Mm-hmm. And so uh, for me, my big thing is there's a lot of, times especially when working in a distributed company where you need to pitch an idea or discuss something that you want to build or or a direction you want to go and when you write it down um just the act of writing it down while it helps clarify what you want to do it also formalizes it in a way that is very difficult to undo and so you know just saying like um uh, I think we should build like GIFs as a service, for example. Like, I mean, let's just say that was my thing. And if I write that down in a proposal in GitHub and I create an issue or a pull request and I say all this and, and then I reach out to a bunch of teams to get feedback, um, whether I intended it to or not, it's, it's, it's done. Like there it is. It's like the 10 commandments and things might change as it goes along as any project does. But just by writing it down, I find that in text things are, are, are considered to be very thought through. Um, you're, you're sure of your direction, even if you state the opposite, I don't think the human brain can handle that, (laughs) that like contradiction. And so for me, when I go, most of my stuff that I'm talking about are the things that I wouldn't be comfortable writing down, not because I think they're bad ideas, but because I, I would like to refine them before going to, uh, my team or the entire company, for example. And so, um, a lot of what I do at summits is just going cross, um, across teams. So not the platform team, because we can always hop into a, like a video chat or something and, and talk stuff out, but talking to the folks in sales, talking to the folks in um, enterprise support, talking to the folks in biz dev, the product teams, and just kind of reaching out to people and saying, Hey, I, I was thinking about this thing. Like, does this really align with what you're working on? Do you think this is something that would be valuable to build or whatever? And so generally speaking at all conferences that I go to, I like to have that, 
like ideal where I can go and just say, this is what I'm hoping to accomplish out of, you know, the conference. And usually it's something more people related. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I definitely, I, we kind of got a little bit of a taste about what was going to be discussed. And so I, I kind of went in going, all right, you know, I definitely want to find something that I can, um, really, you know, push, push this forward. Uh, and so I spent most of my time, I think, chatting with people, socializing with people, um, both semi formally and just, you know, Hey, let's go get a coffee or something and, and chat about X, Y, Z. So did you write any of these sort of prep thoughts down for yourself? Like for example, okay, I, I want to make sure that I talk to these 22 people and like list them out with a little checkbox next to their names. Or do you have like the topics you want to, you know, float the try the, the balloon, you know, out to see what the reaction is, or do you just make mental note? Um, so what I did this year was, is I was pretty sure I, I, um, after uh, defunct wrote an email to the company saying like, this is sort of the direction we should go. And I took that and I had this idea. And so I basically put together an issue, but didn't post it until after the first day's sort of um, talks. So I could sort of make sure I'm aligned with, you know, where we should be going. And so once I had that, I made that post and that post kind of implicitly had, you know, Hey, this team's going to be involved and these people are going to be involved and um, we're going to have to consider this component. And each one of those had a person or people attached to them. And so I didn't have like a little like, um, you know, moleskin notebook or something with like, you know, crossing people off as I talk to them or whatever. But I sort of, you know, floated the idea and, uh, and then walk, took advantage of the fact that we were all in person, um, since most of the people I want to talk to aren't in San Francisco, uh, as well. So even they can't talk to each other, uh, particularly easily. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, definitely not a sort of strike list or something like that, but, uh, I, I, I knew the, the general groups of people that I wanted to chat with. The draft issue idea is pretty clever. I like that. Yeah. GitHub does everything in issues, you know? no matter what it is, whether it's legal or whatever. And so um, I create a gist um, in our GitHub enterprise installation. And then once I'm ready to put it into an issue, I'll copy it over and put it in github.com um, and, you know, mention everyone. Interesting that you can't make a draft issue now that we're talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we def I definitely know a lot of people at GitHub that use gist as a draft mechanism before mm -hmm. being, you know, ready to sort of put it out to the, the public or, you know, the, the quasi public, I guess. Yeah. As I've, so I've always prepped a little bit for those sorts of trips, but as I've, I've gotten older, I've really amped it up. Like I, I make the list of the, the people and usually my objective for it. You know, I found that I, I don't make a list anymore, much of the tactics that I'll use to accomplish my objective outside of like, talk to this person or, you know, get into this conversation, but I find it pretty helpful to have a little checklist to go through. It all, it also reminds me of one of my favorite dinner party gags and maybe I've even done this with us before, but I don't think so. Uh -oh. so. So I've done this for years and it always, it always wins. So uh, if I'm going to go to a dinner party or like out to a, out to a restaurant or whatever, I'll make a list of topics to talk about. But the reason isn't because I like need this list of topics to talk about to help you know, make the conversation easier. It's to do this. So I get to dinner and I set the topic. So I write it down on a little piece of paper, maybe the size of my iPhone or whatever. Um, and, uh, I'll set it down on the table and then I'll glance down at it every, you know, few minutes this, you know, during the conversation. And, 
inevitably someone will ask like an hour into the dinner, what's on the paper. (laughs) And then I get to say, Oh, it was the list of topics that I thought we could talk about, which we've inevitably actually talked about. And it always gets the best reactions. Like some people think it's the weirdest thing anyone could ever do. Some people think it's smart. Most people are somewhere in between. They can't tell if I'm goofing on them or being serious. And that I love that moment. I think that sort of defines a lot of my life. <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that, cause, cause maybe I'm not sure. Like maybe I, maybe I haven't figured out if I'm going to goof or if, if I'm using it for real until the moment. <laughs> Well, it's also a really interesting, like, and I'm, I'm not saying this is why you do it, but, like, personally, it's, what intrigues me is the, like, the defense mechanism behind that, you know? Like, like let's say you, like, float something, and it is just a bomb. It is just a sinker, and it's just going nowhere, or it creates a problem, and then you have this, like, list, you know? And so, like, somebody inevitably goes, oh, what's that piece of paper? And you say, you know, oh, it's everything, you know, I wanted to talk about tonight, or whatever. And, uh, but because it's on this list, like, I feel like there's some level of forgiveness behind it, you know? Oh, like I, if you misjudged I, a situation, it's uh, well, it's on the list. I mean, oh, I, I've done that exact thing. And, and the other, <laughs> the joke is, if something's bombing, I'll stop talking, grab my pen, which is also funny to have at the dinner table, and then cross it off, like with some theatrics, like cross it off a little bit more, in a bit more. <laughs> so of now an, I'm not sure if I know Sean or the character Sean at this point. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's the difference? Like I, so. Uh, uh, my wife there is a big, there is a big difference. I don't I mean, know. <laughs> I think that's like totally normal and okay. There's no judgment there at all. But I mean, there is a huge difference between like always like showing your cards and mirroring. Right. Cause I feel like there's a, I mean, I'm a really, I'm a mirror. I guess it's not really a word. I'm a person who likes to mirror where it's like, you come at me with like a lot of energy, a lot of excitement. I will mirror you because it's just how I deal with social situations. But generally speaking, there's only so many people that I'm like completely comfortable, uh, you know, just being like, no, that's a bad idea. Or like, no, that's just (laughs) dumb or, or whatever. Or just being genuinely like, yeah, that's really cool. Like I'd actually use that, you know? Um, and I don't mean mirror as in lie to your face, but like, you know, if you come in like, oh, hey, it's it's so great to see you. I'm so excited to finally meet you. I'll be like, oh, my God, I can't believe I met you or whatever. You know what I mean? But if you're just like, oh, hey, I'm Kyle, I'm not going to be the person that's like, oh, hey, you know, and go crazy. It's definitely much more of a like, oh, hey, nice to meet you. You know, I'll shake your hand. And so I feel like, you know, kind of like quasi coming back to the summit thing. It's really interesting because 300 people is a lot of people, right? It's a lot bigger than like you what is it Dunbar's number you know where you can like actually have a relationship with all these people oh way bigger yeah and so it's difficult because right like there are people that you've worked with or people that you haven't worked with and this happens in conferences all the time if you you know if people happen to know you from something um you know where it's like i find it so easy just to mirror and i feel like in a way like having that list is like a mechanism for that, you know, where it's like, oh yeah, no, these are the things I wanted to get through or whatever. Uh, and then the other people I feel like are socially obligated to, you know, allow it. (laughs) Whereas if you were just a weirdo where you were like, Hey, so I want to talk about, you know, I don't know, Galileo or something, you know, and it's just like, what the hell is he talking about? You know? Uh, but you have the list and so they're like, Oh, he wrote this all down. Like he's either, a savant or a crazy person, but either way, you know, (laughs) well, I, I, you know, I, um, I don't know if this is self-imposed or imposed on me or a little bit of both, but I am, I do not consider myself much a mirror and like uh, my main, um, uh, 
So when I go into social situations, my main thought is usually, well, my wife is shy and she likes if I drive the conversation for two reasons. Mm -hmm. One, because it makes her more comfortable. And two is she thinks I'm funny. Like, like, so in other words, if we're at a party with 10 people and like someone's going to have to take the lead, that's just sort of how it goes. If it's going to be a fun time, she doesn't want it to be her and she likes it to be me. So, <laughs> so, you know, I, like awesome. I, I've just got my like list of list of gags now, uh, which work pretty well professionally too. I mean, all the same things that would work at, or not all the same, but most of the same th- sort of tricks work, I think pretty well professionally. Yeah. Well, anyhow, so uh, what portion of your list did you check off? I I I nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it was a little bit. Uh, it, I, I yeah, I don't know. This I fe- I felt like this was a highly effective summit for me personally, and hopefully for GitHub users at some point down the road. Um, so yeah, yeah. No, I thought it went really well. That's good. Yeah, well, you've been there a while now, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, I've been there for, I think, a little over two years, maybe about two and a half years now. So um, in the grand scheme of things, given how the company has grown, I mean, there's a lot of people that have never been to a summit. And so it kind of gives you a little bit of leverage, you know, just because you can kind of know more people, you know, the general gist of how these things go and everything. But um, Well, you're in the sweet spot, I think, timeline-wise for having a very yeah. effective summit. like you're a little bit more mature. The company is used to you, but you know, neither are long in the tooth. It's like the perfect time. Right? No, I agree. All right. Well, good. I'm glad it went well. Uh, I I don't do those sorts of trips all that much anymore, but, uh, I think they're pretty fun. Three days is a lot for me, but you know, still a good time. Yeah. So you know what I want to do, Sean, and maybe we should do this. This would be fun. Um, uh, Ben's last name is a, Keeping me uh, from Thoughtbot. Um, uh, or, uh, Rook. Yeah, Orenstein? Is that his last name? Yes, 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 yes. Mm-hmm. Um, him and uh, Chris Hunt, a coworker of mine, have done two codecations before. Have you heard of this? Uh, no. Tell okay, me more. So the basic gist is that you go to a place that, like, um, I think they for one they went to Costa Rica and I, the other one escapes me. But they go and they basically like are coding while they're there, not for work or anything. But like I think they were learning maybe closure or closure script or something while they were there, just the two of them. And then they would do like physical activities in the morning and then uh, you know go have a nice dinner at night and kind of just low key. But they would do it together like for a week. So. Um, Ben Ben wrote a great blog post about it, and I think Chris I think Chris did too. I forget which one I've I was reading, but um, that's been like one of the most intriguing things to me because I feel like that's like a great way to learn something new with someone there in a place that you want to go to, preferably has like good ambiance or good like things to look at while you're you know sitting and working, maybe in your room, maybe on the patio or like wherever. Um, and it's been like uh, it, it's definitely been something that I've been really driven to to do this year or next year just because you know it's i find these bigger trips with github where that's you know even five people is like a lot of social expenditure that needs to happen you know but i feel like to learn something doing it on your own can be a little bit uh you know i don't know taxing or frustrating uh also you know amazing once you figure stuff out but uh it's been something i've been trying to throw together um just go somewhere stateside that's you know tucked away and not necessarily like miami or something like that where it's you know crazy uh a crazy uh you know 
urban busy scene uh but i think i think our wives would be up for that too well see we would go on a codecation and they would you know choose their thing to (laughs) (laughs) i don't know what they would do a bocce-cation maybe well but i mean during the middle of the day you know i think (laughs) yeah totally like there's okay let's pick two alternatives let's say we went on vacation and there wasn't any coding or other activities involved. And so, you know, we're all together, you know, with the families 24 seven, like if you took us away for six, seven hours a day, they'd absolutely find us more entertaining the balance of the day. (laughs) It's true. Like I know Jamie, I know Teresa, this is, you know, a little, a little absence would probably help. <laughs> not, not of them, but of, of us. Talking about Sean, I she enjoys every waking minute of my existence. I'm sure. Uh-huh. That's what she said the other day. Okay. But yeah. So, I mean, I I, I think that I'd love to hear from anyone else who's done something like this because it's like the most intriguing thing to me. And so my current plan now is to take Amtrak somewhere. And so, like, do two days on a train, three days in a location, two days on a train, sort of thing. Sounds fun. It sounds kind of crazy, but I think it's like the perfect mix of like solitude and like really tackling either a hard problem that's maybe work related, but preferably not just so that, you know, I don't have to go with just a coworker. I could go with someone else that's kind of random or, you know, a, a new friend or a non, non work buddy. But it's codecations are really interesting to me. And that to be clear, I'm not advocating like take your vacation time and not actually go on a vacation. This is not a substitute for an actual like, I'm not going to use my laptop vacation. This is like in exchange for maybe going to a conference or something like that. Like maybe, maybe you could just do some professional development on your own. Cause I still go on vacation. Like screw that. I'm not coding through my one vacation a year or two vacations that I take a year. Yeah. I mean, so I, I'm sort of a mixed opinion on this. So I agree. I take non, obviously non coding vacations because I'm, you know, I've, that'd be strange if I didn't. Um, but I'm also not apologetic that I like to code. I think that's sort of, sort of a weird thing now. It's like a, that's a shtick in the community. Like we're supposed to feel bad. We like to, I don't feel bad. I like to, I don't know. I, yeah, I mean, yeah, I I think it's just a matter of, you know, whatever sort of fills you up, you know, I mean, and how you prevent burnout and that might just be working, coding on things that aren't your day job or whatever, you know? Right. Um, and for me, that might be, you know, I don't know, playing video games or going on a day trip or something, you know? Uh, I like walking, hiking. Yeah. yeah. That's a good topic for a day is like, you know, strategies to decompress and we could bucket them by hour, right? Cause it's not hard to come up with strategies that would help you sort of decompress over a week. I think it is a hard topic to say, like, if you had 30 minutes, what can you do that'll help you uh, relax or five minutes or an yeah. hour or whatever? Okay. So we've got to talk a little bit of strategy, a little sponsor uh, strategy. So, and we'll keep this in the show cause it's funny. Uh, we have one sponsor for what was the week that ended like a day or two ago, which I think we could like fudge and say this was that week. Frankly, no one's going to know. I mean, people will know, but whatever. <laughs> uh, and then for next week, which is this week, we have three sponsors. So we could like skip last week or we could treat this as last week's show and do the, the, uh, digital ocean spot. And then just do another show later this week where we do the normal three. Which one do you want to do? I feel like that we should end on a cliffhanger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is which is it going to be? Uh, yeah, season season two, episode three, part one. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. 
Okay, I, I'm going to read last week's, and then we're going to we're going to put this out like it was last week. All right. So let's do uh, let's take a break and talk about DigitalOcean, and then when we come back, let's uh, talk about I think what would be an interesting codecation topic, which has been a frequent request as a topic for this show. Sound good? Awesome. And I'll leave that as a cliffhanger. What is the topic? Okay. So our sponsor today is DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean provides simple and fast cloud hosting built for developers. Create a cloud server in 55 seconds for as little as five bucks a month. It's built for developers and used by over 400,000 of them. It's highly scalable to meet the needs of a rapidly growing application or business. You can even resize your existing droplets uh, in place to meet your needs as your uh, application grows. You can choose your OS, and there are one-click installs for apps like Django, uh, Rails, uh, Magento, whatever. All servers are built on hex-core machines with dedicated ECC RAM and RAID SSD storage. Servers can have up to 20 CPUs, 24 gig of RAM, and 640 gig of SSD hard drive space. You can pick where you deploy. Uh, they've got full-featured DNS management, auto backups, and snapshots. It's super easy to get started. Again, 55 seconds, as little as 5 bucks a month. Uh, lastly, they've got a great active community that produces tons of content about how to go about administering your systems. I found this content super helpful when I set up uh, my own applications on DigitalOcean. So uh, take a look. I think that you'll find it helpful too. If you go to digitalocean.com and use the code Ruby Podcast, you'll get 10 bucks credit on your new account. Again, that, that's uh, digitalocean.com. The code to use is Ruby Podcast, and you get ten bucks. So, thanks to DigitalOcean for uh, supporting the show. Okay. Okay. So, codecation topic. Okay. Every I don't know three days or so, someone asked me on Twitter if I have tried Elixir and Phoenix. And like, oftentimes the question is really enthusiastic. Like they're not just asking cause they're curious or it's not that they want my point of view cause they're considering it. I get the feeling that it's people that have tried it and are super into it and like desperately want, you know, people that they listen to, to try it and give their point of view. Um, do you hear the buzz about Phoenix and Elixir too, or, or is somehow am I caught in that vortex? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, from from very particular people working on very particular projects, I have, you know. Um, I feel like it's starting to bubble outside of that for me. Like, I think that that's what it used to be for me. But now it's, you know, people that don't seem to be, you know, insiders, you know, don't seem to have like a particular reason to care about it, care about it. But hmm. yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, a little bit. Now, I'm that- also not tied into that community, like not not the Elixir community, but the like polyglot community. No, so I, I not really. I mean, there's a, there's enough at GitHub, but because of our size and everything, I mean, shooting a new language through the system is like not exactly simple anymore. Uh, you <laughs> not, know, and, not going to be able to do it. <laughs> so I mean, it kind of like leaves you to. Uh, you know, most of my working hours are focused on languages that we can ship you know, to production or, or to GitHub enterprise. And so, um, and I have, 
uh, you know, back to the, like, how do you de-stress situation? Like, I don't have a ton of off time in which I am poking around different languages, you know? And so most of my interest in Elixir or Rust or whatever has been primarily just uh, of, a, of a bystander, re- reading documents and seeing where things are going, but I haven't seriously sat down and tried to write something with either of them. It's interesting to hear you say that that GitHub, because of its size, is not the ideal place for you know, introducing a new language. Cause I think that, I think a common point of like perspective, and maybe this is just grass is greener thinking, but from people that are in smaller organizations is that it's being part of a big organization that, that affords like the opportunity to build separate services where you can yeah, do whatever the heck you want. Um, but, but maybe, maybe that's just not true. No, it's, it's more that like, I think it's just GitHub's engineering culture. Like if you read the GitHub engineering blog, like a lot of the articles that we have are just very like duh and boring and oh, you use DRB to do that. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's very much just what's the simplest, you know, solution that we can ship that is going to stand up to the traffic. But you know, it doesn't, everything doesn't need to be, uh, you know, uh, crazy interesting or, uh, you know, using whatever the newest technology is. I, I would say GitHub's engineering staff is generally very pragmatic, you know? Um, and so it takes a lot. I mean, so Go worked its way into our infrastructure. And so Go is that class of language for us now. Um, and of all languages to make their way in, I think Go is one of the easier given its deployment story. Right. Like, right. You, you know, there's no requirements, right? It just ship just a file like put the file on the host kind of deal yeah and so i mean it's i i, I, I guess what i'm not saying is you know we're never going to use a new language or something like that that's not even something that i would probably be involved in given the work that i do at github but um but it's more just that you know uh pragmatism i think stops us from a ton of like oh this new language is cool let's like give this a shot with this project and, and launch it because you know, keeping everything running and building and updated and, you know, security is good and everything like that is just, it's just too much. And so, um, I think that if, if something came along that was significantly better than say go or something like that, then maybe, but I, I think that it's, you know, it's it, right now, it's not a, a huge win these other languages. And I just don't, I'm, I'm just not of the personality that I am, um, really intrigued by like, the white paper of why this language is better than these other languages. You know, um, I think everything is, has its ups and downs. And so for me, it's just, you know, can I solve a problem using this language without it causing me more pain than I need? Yeah. I'm with you. I'm not of the type that picks this as my, like I wouldn't pick learning Elixir and Phoenix as my, you know, what to do with four hours this weekend project, generally speaking. Um, but, but I think that I have changed a little bit in that for a long time, I, uh, part of the reason may have been, I don't uh, intimidation feels strong, whatever, like the lightweight version of intimidation is, especially around getting an environment set up. I hate getting environments set up and I hate fidgeting with, you know, just getting hello world and, you know, use this package and do something very, very trivial to work. Right. Like I hate that part of the process. Yeah. Um, but I've gotten better at that. So my, like the cost of trying something now is a lot lower than it used to be. And I think that that, that means I'm more likely to try things now than I used to. Like, for example, I, I tried out go a little bit recently and I even tinkered on a Python thing recently. 
um, just because, um, that, that sort of initial startup cost to trying something new has gone down enough that even if the benefits to me are still the same as they always were, it's easier to try because they, you know, the, the net effect is, is a little bit better. Yeah, sure. But I don't know. I'm thinking that, that I, I have heard enough on Elixir and Phoenix that I, I almost feel obligated to have it be one of my, my, uh, forays soon. Like, I, I mean, I think I would have tried it already if it wasn't for one thing, which is I've heard two types of people recommend Elixir. Type one are, uh, one makes it sound like there's an order. Type first, <laughs> that doesn't help either. A, nope. also in order. One of the types, there we go. So one of the types is frustrated that as it, uh, that in the consulting market, they feel like they can't get the rate that they want to for Ruby on Rails work. I find that argument to be absolutely boring. I don't care at all about that. Just because, like, I, I don't care about it for a number of reasons, but I think it's a bad argument, first and foremost. Um, the type two, or the, the second of the group, um, or another one of the group, I guess, um, their argument is is more fundamental, and they say, you know, for uh, its concurrency and performance story is just fundamentally better. And uh, that I'm interested in. And I would think that your job, I think there would be some interest in that given what you do. At yeah, Canada. definitely. Definitely. So I think that we should put this on our list of things that we maybe, even if it was for an afternoon hack on sometime. Yeah. I, I vote we just, uh, build something and then come back with our work <laughs> Yeah, and, and say, here's what we have learned. Okay. Like Lewis and Clark or something. <laughs> which, which one's which? I don't know. <laughs> I don't even know. I know that one of them died like a very tragic death. <laughs> Do you want a rock, paper, scissors or? <laughs> yeah. So like one of them is particularly sad to be cast as <laughs> at the look. He was like, he was like killed in his sleep. Um, uh, yeah. In a really kind of awful, if I, maybe I'm just making this wow. up. Never ruin a good story with a few facts. Yeah, right. Well, I'm I'm not really contributing many facts here so far. But anyhow, um let yeah, let's figure something out. Let's figure something out to do and uh, report back. All right, I I've, I've been picking topics. Uh why don't you go for one? Okay. So, um so this is kind of quasi random and out of left field, but it's a really cool project that I don't think gets a ton of uh love and it's uh something that we use a fair deal at github so um you ever heard of github scientist no so if you go to github.com slash github slash scientist um one of the kind of problems of github is that it started as <laughs> as like github <laughs> and it was, and <laughs> what does that what does that mean <laughs> Well, if you've ever like heard the origin stories of like a couple of guys hacking GitHub together, you know, and like, and how it has changed over the years to what it is now, which is a huge, you know, host of Git repositories compared to, you know, wouldn't it be cool if you could host Git repositories? Like, you know, that, there's like a huge difference between those two things uh, in terms of scale and, you know, code. Like nowadays, right? Like I feel even most side projects are like TDD and like, really well factored and dry and object oriented and whatever, you know what I mean? Like even side projects are pretty well, the culture of Ruby 
is that, you know, you should be doing a good job. You know, you should be making sure that you're writing good code. Whereas I feel like in 2006 through 2008, where GitHub was started and, uh, you know, I was starting professional uh, Rails stuff, was that, like, screw it, we'll do it live, like, we'll figure it out as we go sort of thing, and then testing kind of happened, and then tests got added and whatever. And so any software project that has stayed a Rails project for eight years, right, has a ton of critical paths that are of questionable test coverage. Oh, Even yeah. if you were to run, like, you know, static code analysis and whatever, it's questionable. And so what they did was um, GitHub uh, rewrote its abilities, uh, rewrote its sort of permissioning model behind the scenes uh, a couple of years ago. And the big question was, like, how do you make sure that even with tests, like, how do you make sure that when you make this change, you're not accidentally introducing a huge bug or in in and in permissioning, right, like, that's just not acceptable. You know, maybe if you, like, introduced a bug that did something kind of badly or whatever, it wouldn't be that big of a deal. Um, so what scientists, what scientist does is it allows you to use this, like, candidate and control method. And so it, it runs both methods and then it compares – or it runs both uh, sides. So it will say, you know um, – you know, control would be the old version and candidate would be the new version, uh, the refactored version of whatever path you're working through. And then it does a comparison to say when those two are different and when they are the same. And so we can pipe this to things like graphite or to a logging mechanism, or maybe you could uh, use a, 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 um, like Honey Badger or some sort of error tracking tool to, to say, oh, yep, this is a mismatch. And in, in production, the code is not, the new code is not acting the way that you anticipate. The values of both methods do not return the same value. And then you can use that to help figure out as you change things and test them, okay, oop, there's a leak here. This wasn't covered by our integration test or our model test or whatever, or unit test or whatever. Uh, and then you can, uh, you know, basically make these changes with a lot more confidence as you get to, you know, huge systems. And so there's a lot of little things in this that are kind of, uh, you know, edge casey and are, might be particular to your own implementation, but it's basically like eighth grade, you know, chemistry, you know, where it's like, this is what I, this is the control and this is the, you know, the candidate and let's see what happens when we actually run this code and then return the value from the control because that's the one that we want um, for now. But let's make sure that while we're introducing these changes that they're like particularly safe. And so this isn't probably a big thing for a project of yours that is Greenfield or anything like that. But if you're working on um, maybe you're a freelancer or a consultant and you're coming into an old code base and the client's like, hey, change this, like really change this thing that's utterly crucial to our business and don't worry, there's tests. Or you might go, okay, well, I need to write all these tests to make sure that this is a safe change. This is like a last line of defense to make sure that the change that you're making is actually, you know, returning the same result, but using a different code path to do it. Okay, so let me describe how it works. And, and you tell me if, if I'm understanding right. Okay? So, because I think that at first it wasn't clear when you were describing it. Now I think looking at some code, I think it's actually, I think it's more clear. So... What you're saying is instead of having a test check that the code works within a method, let's call the method like from the readme, there's an allows method that is a permissions method. So inside of that method, inside of the allows method, you create the experiment and then you give the block of code that should be used as the currently active block for that method. 
And then you also give another method and maybe there, yeah, another method, which is the, the one to also run and then compare the, what will be the return value of and log it. Right. Yep. Basically. Yeah. Um, that's, you can, that's clever. I think you can also have it do where, um, uh, you can also have it return two different things entirely. Um, but then have a compare method that can, that, you know, breaks it down. So that whatever the, the base information is, you know, so you can compare those two things, even though the, the new method is actually going to return something completely different. Um, and then, yeah, and then you can log it or we use graphite to graph it. And so you can actually see like where there's mismatches and we have like a little bit of a UI for that, which you could all hook into, um, using this for the, for your own thing. But, uh, like towards the bottom, you see publishing results and it sends it to stats D, which is for graphing and stuff. So, um, yeah, it's really interesting and it's something that's super edge case, like a super, uh, uh, you know, something that not everyone is going to use, but this is something that is awesome once you need it. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think that actually most people would have a need for this because, uh, for a couple of reasons. So first is that it, it doesn't exist at the level of the application. This is like a method level. Do you need it or not? Yeah. Question. And everyone has a method that at some point in the not too distant future, they're going to refactor. Um, and they're going to have the question like, uh, does it actually work the same way? Especially in a case where the, it'd be very difficult to test all the permutations of, you know, all the situations where this method could get called. Right. And, you know, if even when you test, even when you do, you know, TDD or you write the tests, like are, if this is wrong, if your assumptions in your tests are incorrect, or if your integration tests are not covering the realities of production data, right. are you willing to live with that failure? And a lot of times the answer could be yes. It could be, yep, whatever. It's not that big of a deal. But there are cases in, you know, in authorization in you know, really sensitive uh, code blocks where the answer is no. And this is an easy way, uh, or maybe not easy, but it's a particularly clean way uh, to make sure that, you know, you're actually not introducing a huge bug uh, as you make the change. So you still test both sides and everything, integration, unit, the whole nine yards, but then you put this in as like the last resort before you go live to production. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't seem, it seems like the effort wouldn't be in the using or in like the writing of the code. I mean, it, it's simpler. You just wrap the two code blocks and call it run on the experiment. I think that the, the difficult part is actually looking at the data and saying yeah. like, like, okay, you know, the 17,000 times this method was called today, like how many times do the results differ? And now let's like go down the money trail on each of them to figure out what, what's up. That, yeah. That's work. Yeah, and this doesn't have this tool doesn't have a particularly good story for that if you don't already have something that you can report to, you know. I mean, like the examples here show graphing, they show Redis, so you can have the actual raw data. Um, I think the easiest thing that you that most Rails apps already have is some sort of error tracking, and so I would probably start by shooting it over to an error tracking system. Um, but what what error tracking is not going to tell you is, is how many times this code block was actually run. You know, um, you could maybe increment something in Redis uh, or whatever, but um, this doesn't control where you want to publish the data to. Um, it has a bunch of hooks to help you do that, but uh, but yeah, it's definitely looking at it and you know 
obviously your hope is that, oh, well, it's just all going to be green and we're going to leave it out for a couple days or a week or depending. Uh, and, you know, don't worry, everything matched and you're uh, magical and, uh, you know, top of your class. But at the end of the day, that's probably not entirely true, at least some of the time. And so uh, looking at the data, you know, I'd probably start with just shooting it over to your error tracking system if you have one, can which you, you should. I w- can you, I mean, obviously you could, I think it'd be interesting to async the try on some expensive things. That's probably a thing, but again, it would require more setup. And then, you know, it's not, it's introducing another variable in which the things differ, which is probably not exactly what you want in this situation. Yeah. I mean, this, this does have a couple ways in which you can, um, like take some expensive actions, you know, um, like it has, um, a way you can basically do, uh, you know, a before run for the actual, uh, for both of the tests. Like when you need to do something once and you want to make sure it's set up for both. Um, but yeah, I don't know, honestly, that it has an async. I don't think it would because it needs to compare the values. Um, but this is, the, I, I think arguably the idea is that if whatever you're testing is eventually going to make it to production. So if it needs to be async, then it could be a little bit trickier, like if you're moving something from a foreground to a background job or something like that. Um, but it's a great, it's a good topic though. I think I love a, I love a library like this where the need for it is so obvious. I mean, we've anyone that's written a decent amount of code that's actually gone to production and now is going to get changed has seen the need for this exact solution. Yeah, totally. All right. Good job by you, Kyle. Hey, there you go. <laughs> All right. Well, you know what your reward is? Oh, no, don't do it. <laughs> you get to pick the next topic. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> that's, that's how this goes. <laughs> this, is, this, is what I, this is what I get for my, uh, my good work. I, shouldn't I just get a gold star and I can go back to my desk or something? Yeah, you also get a gold star. No, that's not how it works. The, the, this show is partly about educating people about the way of the, the, way of the world. And the way of the world is not that uh, good work is rewarded with less work. That's not how it goes. <laughs> Oh man. Um, so I'm going to sort of cheat a little bit and, uh, and talk about something that is not directly rails related, but, uh, as a remote employee of GitHub, how much time Sean, would you say you spend in a video chat per day? Oh, a week, let's say, sorry. (sighs) Not much time. Yeah. And so, I mean, GitHub was kind of notorious for never having meetings. And honestly, the meeting situation at GitHub is, is still very good in comparison to anywhere that I've ever worked. The, the point of this is not so much how much time do you spend in meetings, but in what mechanisms do you do meetings? Um, <coughs> excuse me. And so uh, Scott, uh, Scott Hanselman of uh, Microsoft fame uh, wrote a really good blog article about this recently. Um, basically like what it's like to be the remote employee um, in the, the trouble you go through in terms of being able to like have a say in a conversation. And so at GitHub, my team is primarily remote. Uh, I don't think any location has two people in it. Uh, and so we're all in video chat when we do like weekly planning or we need to hop on and discuss something. And I swear to you <laughs> every week, no matter what tool we use, someone spends at least 15 minutes, 20 minutes, like, Oh, my microphone isn't coming through or, you know, Oh, bandwidth is a little screwy right now. We're having all these problems. And so screen hero, which 
I think was one of the best collaboration tools that has come out recently, allowing me to share my screen with you and we could code and we can each, you know, uh, work in a single editor or whatever without a ton of lag and grossness that is usually with most screen sharing, I believe doesn't allow you to even sign up anymore because it got purchased or whatever. And oh, really? So, I had Screen Hero running in the background here. I didn't know they, they got purchased. Yeah, they definitely got purchased. I use Screen Hero, and I think if you're in, you're in for a while, but I'm not sure that they still allow you to sign up, at least not uh, all the time. Um, and we've used tools like BlueJeans uh, at GitHub, which is a video chat you know system. I don't think we've used Citrix or whatever, but I know that everyone that uses that also has similar problems. Google Hangouts has a ton of weird problems when it comes to video chat. And I'm curious, like... For a collaboration tool that just seems so crucial, especially now in in the Rails community, which is I think pretty remote friendly in, compar- in comparison to other languages or other you know tech communities, um, how we still haven't solved this problem yet, you know? Uh, maybe video's the wrong. Maybe it's the wrong problem to solve. I mean, you could be you could be entirely right. I mean, we obviously use chat a ton, and I know a lot of companies still use chat, um, which is great. But to jump to high fidelity conversation uh you know even chat or i'm sorry even like just audio doesn't always accomplish it um yeah you know the the person that i video chat with the most and and i i think my point in the end here is going to be that it that you have to use the medium that makes the most sense for the individuals involved so there can't be like a right answer like i think that's where i'm going to get to but the, the person that i video chat the most with is my father of all people because he like, uh, so he's an attorney and we, we do some business together now and then, and sometimes he's helping me and sometimes I'm helping him. Um, and, uh, he likes video. Like I find it more effective to meet with him about business topics over video chat than any other possible way. Better than the phone, better than in person, better than by email, better than by text. Um, I'd probably put, you know, in person and then text if I was making the order, uh, but uh, we use FaceTime, but you know, which works perfectly. Um, but I don't think that, uh, I don't know that does FaceTime work with multiple people? I don't even know. No, it doesn't. It, no, it's ideal for one-to-one. Yeah. Like family. Every time I travel and I FaceTime, I was just talking to someone about this, about how FaceTime generally speaking has made it very magical, right? I'm right. allowed to, I'm able to travel a lot more because I'm always just a, a click away to having a video chat with someone over LTE, usually my son, you know, or whatever. And so that's great. The problem is, is that to go from one-on-one, you know, one click chat to one on many, you know, less than 10, let's just say seems like such a leap still that it's a bummer because I think that that's going to be, Maybe it's not video chat to your point, you know. I don't think it's audio chat, but some sort of, you know, collaboration, uh, meaningful collaboration where I can see or I can better understand your affect and your, you know, emotion and what you're saying uh, as we go uh, is going to be the secret to keeping remote viable or making it highly more viable. Um, Because right now, even at GitHub, right, I still meet with my team in person, say, three or four times a year, um, which isn't horrible. It's great. I love seeing them in person. But it would be awesome to be able to click a button and, you know, be good to go. Yeah. Uh, You know? So so a couple thoughts. So one, I think that there's something to this idea that, like, one person broadcasting the video of their selfie talking seems like a figured out problem. Like, if you think about... 
FaceTime and Periscope, right? Like that works. Like it works technically people can see, etc. I don't think that there are many times where I'm in a group meet. Like I do think there are times in a group meeting where I want to be able to see the person talking for the reason you just said. So that's yeah. the thing. I don't think there are many times where I want to see more than the person talking. In other words, like let's say it's you, me and, and Fred and you're talking. I don't care what Fred looks like at the time you're talking at all. Like don't care. Like, so in other words, if it was just like, there can only be one face on the screen at once and you sort of pass the, you know, pass the, the conch shell to the person that's got the mic that actually would do it for me. Um, on my multiple person, you know, chat requirements. You think that would do it for you? Um, Maybe. I mean, a lot of these tools try to do that already, right? Where yeah, Google you, Hangouts tries to do that as well. Yeah, when you talk, it shows you the video or whatever. The problem is, is you know, I mean, it's a hard, it's a hard problem. To be fair, it's not something that I think is super simple to solve. I mean, there's a ton of different network connections all potentially going to the same place, and you're dealing with people who have slow connections and packet loss and whatever in different hardware, the whole nine yards. But, <laughs> uh. But we haven't yet had that leap yet. I mean, even like Apple, who, you know, spends all this time on these sorts of problems, I guess, you know, when when there was iChat, you could do like the three or four person video chat. And even that wasn't awesome, right? Like it was okay, but it wasn't great or it wasn't consistent because I could deal with crappy video chat if it was consistent. Yeah, I, I know? agree. And you're right in the consistency because even Google Hangouts is sometimes great. Oh yeah, sometimes it's the most magical thing ever and you're, it's like looking through a window, you know, cuz you're both in HD and then you could call that same person back that same day in the same network conditions arguably from in your two point locations, obviously not between you and video just won't go. Mm-hmm. Or like your microphone isn't because you like plugged a mic in and unplugged a mic and now Chrome can't figure out what the heck is going on. Um, you know, and so you want to be like, "Oh, hey, let's just hop on a call and do this quick thing and just chat cuz it'll be faster or whatever." Um, which which could be an anti-pattern altogether, but it's it's impossible. I mean, a call that was supposed to last me like five or ten minutes today took you know like thirty minutes because we had to try three different services to get to the point where both of us could have a good chat. Now, when I think about the product, like the the hypothetical productivity difference between the status quo and a world with a fixed multi-person video chat. And the actual observed productivity difference, at least in my world, between pre-Slack and post-Slack, I don't think it would make as big of a difference as Slack did. I find Slack to be super magical. And I think that's such a boring point of view because everyone loves Slack. But man, I am there. I love it. Like super love it. I feel like the reason why Slack is considered boring is, is because people consider, generally speaking, like chat to be solved. You know, like... I sent you text and you received text and then you sent me text back, right? That is not what makes Slack interesting at all. <laughs> yeah, because because if it was solved, Slack wouldn't be amazing. And Slack is super... Like, I'm not right. just amazing. I mean, it's impactful. It's like changed my life for the better. Yeah. Well, what do you think it is? What's the, what's the magic? I think the magic is grafting on the social interactions that we can't currently do in most chat tools right and so for slack right it's it's big thing that i think separated it out immediately was um you know it's integrations right like half of chat is like bringing information into chat um or you know and not just copying and pasting it like a, a buffoon you know and so that was really valuable 
having one-to-one conversations, which wasn't unsolved. Um, but you know, it, it, I think that's a huge part of it. And I think where Slack is going nowadays can be seen by its uh, way that allows you to like emoji mark a message. You know, like you can add a reaction to a message now with an emoji. Right. That I think is the most interesting thing that Slack's done recently, primarily because I think it's showing you how we communicate, right? And it's hard for humans to communicate in a text format because that's not the way our brain works. But for me to be able to see something and kind of laugh or whatever, what do you do? Like nowadays you're like, LOL, smiley face or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. But it's way more high fidelity to click a line and be able to say add a reaction and pick an emoji out of, you know, 400, 500 emoji or whatever that explain, you know, what or show how you, what, what emotion you have right now. I think that actually makes a huge difference, you know, um, especially when you're chatting with more than one human being at a time. Uh, again, because text chats one-to-one are, are generally okay, right? You can, a, a, a good conversation isn't one in which we're both talking on top of each other, right? But in chat with three people, inevitably there are two people talking at the same time, you know? Um, and so I think that that, along with the general joy of Slack, like Slack doesn't take itself utterly seriously. It's not IRC. It's not you know, link Microsoft link. It's, right. it's, you know, it doesn't mind being a little silly. Um, I think also really, really helps. It's, uh, helps. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's big push that it has right now, but I don't think what makes it special is like, is like the utter chat portion of it. It's the, like the chat social experience, you know, that allows me to be a lot closer with my coworkers. Yeah. No, I, 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 I totally agree. I, and I think that, the common refrain that it's the integrations. Well, I, I kind of half agree. Like I don't totally disagree with that. I, I mean, that's not number one for me at all. And I, I don't think it's number one for the users. I, I, I think that it's, that it's human it feels like Slack feels human. And it always creeps me out a little bit that that's the case because it's not human. It's a company. And, and, but like it, it it's personality, the personality that it allows. Okay this is a better point of view. The personality that Slack allows you to have in your work communication is unparalleled. Like I can be me on Slack and I can be effective. And it's not, there's not like a trade, like I'm being goofy or I'm being effective. Like it just works. Like you get both done and man, it's really fun. I like it. Well, and yeah. And I mean the integration side for me, isn't the fact that you can do X, Y, and Z using this integration. Right. Cause like, Campfire had that. HipChat had a lot of that. I think the thing that makes it a little more magical is that it's not presuming you're a developer. <laughs> you know, it's like this tool can do these other things, but all you have to do is click this button and link it over to Basecamp or whatever, right? I think that a lot of the tooling right now in these new services, um, I mean, and in some ways, including how GitHub currently integrates with other systems. Um, treats you like a developer, right? If you go and sign up for a continuous integration service, it treats you like a developer, which is fine, right? <laughs> That's most, definitely true. <laughs> right. Most most people are developers that need to sign that up, but like, but why? Like, why does it need to treat me like a developer? Why does it need to say, you know, oh, give us the seven commands that you need to run right now, you know, in order to run your tests or whatever? Like, it it, it can be more human. It can be more like, I want to be a human being as much as possible and a developer second to that. <laughs> yeah. And there are no tools or I shouldn't say no tools. There are very few tools who are currently taking that approach. They're just optimizing for, um, 
oh, you're a smart developer. Like, here's the, here are the knobs that you probably want to touch. Whereas for me, I would much rather Slack's approach where it's like, you log in, you take an action, and then the stupid little Slack bot's like, oh, hey, did you know that you can do this thing that you just did this, but you could do it better by doing this? And then it's gone, right? And, and there's no more. Like, that's a very human thing. It's right. like, oh, hey, I want you to know that there's this other way to do this instead of the much more like developer centric thing, which is like, here's an email newsletter with an announcement about this new feature or like, here's this stupid tooltip that you have to look at, you know, that describes this new feature. And then do you want to go configure it to turn it on? Like, no, that's crappy. Slack's like, hey, I'm Slackbot. What's your name? Right, that's like superhuman, and that's yep. it's treating me like a human being instead of saying, "Hey, sign up now, fill this form out, please." Well, the, <laughs> the irony in that though is that the way that they feel, the way that they make Slack feel so human, is is the opposite of being human itself. Like, in other words, in order to treat right. you like a human, they had to do the they had to not have blog posts announcing things written by people. They had to take all that personality and and jam it into these bots that are scanning and responding. And yeah. I find it very interesting. Like yeah. and and uh super hard to pull off, like wicked hard. And uh I feel like they could be the my like sole inspiration for what I want to build. Because I, I they just get it right. You know, they somehow are ultra automated in their approach while making it feel less so while making it feel more human to the user, which is just super cool. Yay. Slack. Yeah. Yay. Slack. And I'm hard to copy. It's actually gotten me very interested recently in design. Like, I mean, everyone's interested in design. It's cliche to say that design's the thing, blah, blah, blah. But I think Slack is a good example in my life where I'm like, you know what? This isn't me, the consumer that likes to have the shiny thing because I like to have the shiny thing. This is like me, the, the, the worker, the business person that wants to be effective and is more effective because this thing is designed well. Not because it makes me feel nice and comfy, but because it allows me to be a better, per, you know, better, uh, more effective as a, as a person. And, uh, that's interesting. Yeah, totally. Okay. Well, I think that us, uh, cheerleading slack is probably a good last topic. <laughs> I actually don't think it's a good last topic, but I think it's going to be the last topic. Yeah, no, totally. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Anything you want to close with? Uh, no, I am, uh, I'm excited to be back in the regular swing of things and hopefully, uh, we can, uh, you know, do some, uh, elixir spelunking <laughs> right and figure out uh you know rails five because that's uh coming out the gate soon i think yeah that okay so uh good point we should uh we should ask people for some feedback so we've gotten some feedback about wanting to hear about rails five which we'll do um hopefully uh we can make that kind of interesting uh we've heard uh what are some other topics recently uh object oriented versus functional more talk on that. Uh, do you find that topic interesting? Um, a little, <laughs> <laughs> I kind of do find it interesting, not in the language nerd way, but I think in, uh, like I, I definitely have seen in my own work, the, the costs and benefits of each now enough to find, to at least have an opinion that I think is interesting. Yeah. Do's and don'ts of building and scaling has been a, a request, uh, recently um i mean you could have a whole show about that of course um and i think object oriented is has some crossover with that so anyhow so we've got some interesting topics we always have topics that we're looking for 
But, um, if you want to be like Jay Wilburn, who proposed a few of the last ones that I just mentioned, then just hit us up on Twitter and, uh, we'll add your topics to the list and, and, uh, get to them as we can produce interesting thoughts about them. All right. So follow us on Twitter. What's, uh, what's your Twitter handle? K Daigle on Twitter and GitHub. Yep. I'm barely known on, on, uh, GitHub and Twitter also. Don't bump. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. It's still, still a joke. That's the thing about if you make your handle a joke is that you never can unjoke it. <laughs> although, although my hope is that, and it sort of happened, but when I had, when I first became barely known on Twitter, I had far fewer followers than I do now. And now I don't have enough that it's like a super ironic joke, but it's like getting there. Um, but I, I would like to have enough followers on Twitter that it, it, uh, gets into the full fledged ironic joke land. And then I'll regret it then because then I'll have this like period of regret. I'm like, Oh, now I'm the guy with the ironic Twitter handle, not just the stupid, you know, jokey Twitter handle. (laughs) I'd like to, I'd like to, I'd like to hit that place. All right. Well, thanks to everyone for listening to this episode and giving the good feedback. Uh, feel free to share the show if you like it with people you work with and your mom. That's it for me. Adios. See you.